0: Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christchurch Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Amen. Well, I'm very excited to be able to preach this morning. Super thankful Uh, Jared gave me the opportunity. If you don't know me, I'm Josh. Uh, We're relatively new here. Uh, Me and my family. Uh, My sweet wife, Hannah, and my sweet boys, Silas and Noah. Uh, I used to be a pastor. We're kind of in the in-between stage, and I called up Jared and said, You got room for four more? And I think we had it just barely. It looks pretty full in here this morning. But it was so funny because me and my wife were talking, really for the first time in the season. I'm saying, should I think about preaching again? And literally the next day, Jerry texted me and said, Would you like to preach? So at least to say, we've been really doubting the sovereignty of God uh, this week. It's just neat how God puts all things together. But I love that we are part of a Bible preaching, Bible teaching church. And we're going through the book of First Peter, so if you have your Bibles, turn to First Peter chapter 1, and we will read verses 13 to 25 to the end of the chapter, finishing up First Peter chapter 1. And I'm excited that I'm at a church that I can preach the text, I can expound on the text, and apply the text. I know this church wants nothing more than to hear the Bible, Amen. 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 So this is God's perfect, infallible word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we put our trust in you this morning. We want to hear from your word, your infallible word. Your word is sharper than any two-edged swords. I, I pray today we would just hear your word. We would hear it unfiltered, unedited. We would just hear this text of holiness, this pursuit of holiness. I pray today that for those who are callous in their hearts, you would put a yearning in us, a desire to be like God, to be holy for he is holy. I pray today that this pursuit of holiness, this journey of holiness that if we have backslidden we would get back on that trail and we would desire to live a life that is glorifying unto your name. We pray all these things in Jesus name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is the pursuit of holiness. Holiness is everything to the believer. But holiness is a journey. A pursuit that begins with our spiritual birth and ends with our physical death. Every believer's desire is to grow in holiness, and any man who's not concerned with holiness is a dead man. It's a man without a pulse. Matthew Henry said, quote, No attribute is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness, unquote. But at the very same time, there is no attribute more precious and desirable to the true believers than God's holiness. To summarize A.W. Tozer, uses a beautiful illustration saying the church is like hundreds hundreds of pianos that are perfectly in tune. Not because you're concerned of looking like the person to your left or to the right, but because they are tuned to a standard. I'm excited to preach this morning because there are many pianos, many Christians that are in tune with holiness. Not because we're concerned looking like the world, amen? But because we are in tune with the standard that God has brought to us. So although holiness is the most dreadful attribute to a sinner, to the believers in this room, it is the one thing that we yearn for and desire, the pursuit of holiness. There is beauty in holiness. Jonathan Edwards said, quote, the holiness of God has always appeared to me the most lovely of all his attributes. And I pray we see that today. That we would not see holiness as old or obsolete or even archaic. I pray that we would see what the psalmist said in Psalms 96, verse 9 Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That we would glorify God worship God by pursuing holiness holiness and sanctification really come from the same Greek root word and what it simply means is separating from sin that if you're gonna live a life of holiness you're gonna live a life of denying oneself separating from sin that's the negative aspect but there's a positive aspect And that is separating from sin and separating yourself unto god that the goal of a believer is to separate from sin not just to separate but so that we might commune with god that we might grow closer in christ and that we might follow his commandments and glorify his name separating from sin and separating to god and we need this in every part of our lives in your marriages And your parenting, amen? We need in every part of our lives, holy talking, holy thinking, holy working. Whatever we can do, we need holiness along with it. And today we will look at many steps, many truths that help us during this pursuit of holiness. But you're going to need your Bible today, and I want you to look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Before we look at the steps of holiness, we need to look at the cause of holiness. The first word in this text is the word therefore. And if you're a student of the word, if you're trying to dig in and figure out what this thing says, a good rule of thumb, if you see the word therefore, you need to see what it's there for. And what we see in this text is this word therefore, this three-letter Greek word, the placing of this word separates... This teaching from every false doctrine, for every false teaching, and every false religion. Because what we see precedes the word, therefore, is promise, gospel and grace. That's what Jared preached last week. He preached gospel and grace and good news. To such an extent, Peter says in the passage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says. Because what we read last week is that it's God that caused us to be born again, that we're born again to a living hope. And the reality of this good news, it changes us. But we see before, therefore, there is gospel, promise, grace, good news. In fact, if you look any time in the epistles, if you see the word therefore, there's always promise before and command after gospel before and law after. That's important for us to see today, because we cannot pursue holiness with the wrong motivations. We have to see that gospel comes first. It always comes first. Promise, then command. Gospel, then law. Wherever we are called to follow the law of Christ, you'll see gospel motivation. And just to summarize, our works this morning, and we need to hear this, our works are never A feeble attempt to get a response from God it's never an attempt to try to get God to look upon us in a worthy fashion that is never why we do what we do instead we do what we do not to get a response from God but it is a response to what God has already freely and graciously done do you see that today do you believe that today? Many people don't. I served uh, at my parents' church, Redeemed Biker Church. You did hear that right? Biker Church. I don't look like a biker. Big do-rags and tattoos. and it was, a, it was a great time of ministry. We actually did teach through books of the Bible. But many people have this misunderstanding that it's your works that build a stairway to heaven. And the reality is, if you believe that, your eyes are deceived and you're blinded because you're building a stairway to hell. Because your works cannot save you. We see in this text, and it's so important, that word, therefore, is the connecting point. It's the hinge upon which this text swings. (laughs) Gospel always comes before command. No man gets God to respond to him. We respond to God. And this will make you pause if you really understand the implications of that statement for many of us it has because what that means is that the holiness that we desire does not start with you we read that first Peter chapter 1 verse 3 it is God that causes us to be born again So that is God that causes you to be born again. So it is God that causes us to live and to live for him. John Owen said, quote, we can have no power from Christ unless we live in a persuasion that we have none of our own you believe that today, that you have no power of your own to live for Christ, to honor Christ, to follow Christ's commands? And until we're fully persuaded of that reality, we will have no power to live for him. So as we dive deeper in this text, if you're not concerned with holiness this morning, I pray that the preaching of God's word would pierce your heart this very moment. That it says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray today, if if you're calloused, if if the flame has gone out, that God would pierce your heart and you would yearn for holiness once again. Because it starts with him. It starts with him opening our eyes to see the good news. Because we're about to look at many commands. Many commands that Christ demands of us. But without the affection of Christ, you will fall short. We read it last week, First Peter chapter one, verse eight says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Do you see in the text? The affection comes first. That's where it starts. If you do not love what you cannot see, you will not obey what you cannot see. You will not sacrifice for what you cannot see. And you will not die for what you cannot see. This word, therefore, is not just a trivial word. It's not a filler word. We see gospel precedes command. And we do see many commands in this text. So look at your Bibles in verse 13. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. The Christian life is a thinking life. And unfortunately today, that's an anonymous. That that is not considered the Christian way, a thinking way. And that's really our sin in America that we have dumbed down the gospel. Yes, that the gospel is simple and true. But to live a Christian life is to live a thinking life. What does Psalms 1 say? Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law. He's the one that's blessed. He's He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. Prepare your minds for action. The, the literal translation of this verse is so powerful. It would have spoke volumes to the original hearers. That a more literal translation of this is, gird up the loins of your mind. And this would have really brought two pictures to the original hearers. One of a soldier and the other of a runner. It says Peter is looking at the church as a bunch of soldiers who aren't prepared for battle. And Peter says, you're about to go out of these walls, and you're going to get slaughtered. You're going to get eaten up and spit out. Peter says, you're not ready. You need to gird up the loins. Because a soldier, he would gird up his robes and tuck it in his belt. And until he did that, it was not signifying that he was ready for the battle. If Peter wrote this today, he might say that you're a soldier who took off the bulletproof vest because you didn't like the hike before the battle. That you're about to go in the battle where life and death is on the line, and you still have your safety on. And Peter says you need to gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, we have a battle to best. And that leads us to the question, are you really giving your best this morning? Can you honestly say that you're girding up the loins of your mind? (sighs) And, and the obvious question in this text is, how do we prepare our minds for action? How do we gird up the loins of our minds? And the question is, it's, it's not complicated. It, it's not eye-opening. It's to read your Bible. It's to open up that Bible. It is to get on your knees with the Word of God in prayer. And Peter is looking at these people and saying, you're not ready. You can't just go to work. You can't just parent You can't just have a good marriage. You have to prepare for it. Preparation is the key. Peter says before we go any further, if you don't do this, you're not going to have anything. You have to prepare your mind. So next time the alarm goes off, you know the one you said a little earlier in your iPhone so you can get some prayer time in, and you, struggling with your sanctification, press the snooze button. You're just like, you know, there's grace. God still loves me. Instead of just thinking that as a snooze alarm, Peter's trying to open our eyes and saying, no, that is an attack siren going off. And the enemy is approaching. And if you don't think the enemy is approaching, you are deceived. That's not a snooze alarm. That's the attack sirens going off saying, you need to prepare because the enemy is coming to steal and kill and destroy. And Peter is saying, gird up the loins of your mind.'" What we see as trivial, God sees of utmost importance. Gird up the loins of your mind. So one picture is of a soldier, the other is of a runner. He too would gird up the loins before he would run, and simply because you don't want any loose ends. And it's a sad reality today that we have many loose ends in our thinking. And I've talked to many of you, many of you I still need to get to know, But many of you I've talked to, and you're thinking about homeschooling your kids, which I just think is wonderful. Because the Bible commands us, us, the parents, to instruct and teach our children. And we understand there's circumstances you can, and Jared's preached on that a lot. He's encouraged us, if it's possible, teach and instruct your kids, because we need to prepare the next generation. But what we see is we have not prepared rightly. Because when we send our kids off to these secular universities and off in this evil world, we see they're falling off by the dozens, by the thousands, by the millions. We're not preparing our children's minds. There's too many loose ends in their thinking because we haven't thought deeply about things that deserve to be deeply thought about. And it's funny, I've talked to some of you, and the people who are most negative about the homeschooling are Christians. How many of you have noticed this? You're like the oddball, the black sheep. You're like, hey, we're going to homeschool our kids. And they just look at you like you're the devil himself. Like, How dare you? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Holiness is going to look different. It is set apart. Yeah. Don't be afraid to look different. The Bible says that the student will be like his master. And I look at the masters in middle school and high school. And in university, so I'm not sure I want my kids to look like that. And I don't mean to frighten you, but even the elementary schools. Even at a young age, I don't particularly want my students to look like that kind of master. We need to prepare their minds. They're on this journey, they're running, and we are tripping them up because we have not prepared their minds. And perhaps there's a third picture, and that is a traveler. You read Exodus chapter 12. It uses the same terminology when they're having the Passover. It says, I want you to eat the Passover in this way. And he says, I want you to gird up the loins. And I love the NET, the way it translates it. I want you to eat prepared to travel. That's the picture this text gives. You're in exile. You are not home. So when you eat... When you drink, when you work, everything you do, you need to be working and doing all these things with the mindset that this is not my home. I'm doing these things prepared to travel into eternal glory. Prepare the the loins. gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. And then we keep reading, and this is a similar point, so I won't spend too much time on it. It says, being sober-minded... We're using the New American Standard, a little more literal. It says a sober spirit, and it literally means not intoxicated. that we can't be under the influence of this world or a substance and live wholly for God. We, we know, and, and many of you, perhaps some of you deal with this in this room, that alcohol is a weakness for you. And this text addresses it very quickly, that to being prepared, For action is to understand your weaknesses. And perhaps if you cannot handle it, to stay away from it. So we see a prepared mind, a sober spirit. And then we see in the text in verse 13, a fixed hope or a set hope. Look at your Bibles. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where Jared preached last week that we have a living hope. It's a real hope. It's a vibrant hope. It's a hope you can stand on. It's it's real. It's it's concrete. And we understand in this life that not everything that glitters is gold, but there are true riches in Christ. And from this text, we see that we are to set our hope fully on the grace i will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, it means the second coming of Jesus Christ. That we as a believer are to have our hopes and affections set on the reality that Jesus is going to come in the clouds and burst them asunder with great power and glory. And he's going to gather his elect, and he's going to bring his kingdom, and we'll be with him forevermore. That's where our hope should be this morning. A real hope that Christ will will come and it's interesting i want you to to look at the text again although it's talking about the revelation of jesus christ there's a key word set your hope fully on the grace the grace and from this text we see a beautiful picture of grace in the christian life there's grace from beginning to end We read in this passage that there's grace in our salvation, there's grace in our sanctification, and there's grace in our future glorification when Jesus comes. It's grace from beginning to end. And this is where our home should be. We should desire to be home with Christ. Have you ever got stuck in a conversation and just can't get out? Some of you introverts you are like, yes, I got in a conversation. You're like, man, I don't know how to land this thing, can't get out of it. You're just stuck. And there's just a reality that, that social events are fun, but there's just a time you want to get home. And Peter says it's finally time for believers to get the callous off their heart and say, I just want to be home. I just want to be with God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is communing with God. And that is our hope. So we see not only we need a set hope, number four, we need to have a resolve, a resolve, or perhaps you can word it a stubbornness, a stubbornness or holiness. Let's look in our Bible as obedient children, it says in verse 14, we'll read verses 14 to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed. Once you hear that, it says do not, this is where our will comes in, I will not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There has to be a resolve. There has to be a determination that you will not dishonor God's name. You will not dishonor your spouse. You will not dishonor your children because there will be temptation. And there comes a point where you're just going to have resolve and say, I'm going to choose what God says over what the world says. Amen. There has to be a resolve, there has to be some grit. And we've lost that. Spiritually speaking, our hands aren't calloused enough. And this text says, you're just going to have to make a determination. And don't think there's not going to be temptation. This text just gets right into the center of our heart. Don't think that there won't be temptation. John Owen said, quote, Steadfastness in believing does not exclude all temptations from without. When we say a tree is firmly rooted, we do not say that the wind will never blow upon it. So what we need to know today is there's some Christians in here, and you got roots, but don't think the wind won't come. The wind will come, and it's going to blow I'm from uh, southern Georgia. I can't believe how much it rains here. It just blows my mind. I just felt like I need to build an ark every time it starts raining. It's just absolutely insane. And some of the trees I see, it just blows my mind. Just, just how much wind it can take. And that is the glory of Christ. Not a firmly rooted tree that the wind never blows upon. No, the glory of Christ is when the winds and the storms rage. And because of Christ's goodness and grace is part of our life, we're still rooted and we're still standing after the storm. And that is temptations. The winds will come. And it's interesting, the passage, it says obedient children. I know some of you are wondering what that looks like. <laughs> So let's define it. <laughs> Obedient children are not children who don't have temptations and inclinations to do crazy and radical things. You ever just see, and it's not my family; I'm still working. Out, you ever just see some kids in church, and you're just like, "How, dude? They're just, they're just like this, and it, the whole time it just blows your mind. It's cool. It's really cool. <laughs> I'm like, teach me, bro. This, it's cool." That is not because those children have no inclinations or desires or temptations to do what is wrong. Obedient children are children who are still children. We're still children in the Lord. We're still going to have inclinations to do things we ought not. But obedient children are children I've learned to say, I'm going to trust the Father. The Father has instructed me. The Father has disciplined me. And the Father has brought me this far. That's what obedient children are. And I don't know if you've said this before. I, I know I have. I've said, son, you know better. How many of you have said that? Son, you know better. And that's what we need to know today. We're like obedient children who know better. We know better. And we need to know today that we have a father. A father who will judge us. When to look at the text, it says we know better. We see that, right, in the text in verse 16. We know better, for the Bible simply says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's an amazing statement. You know, when we are holy, it's just a quality that we have. When God is holy, it's his essence. And perhaps it's the greatest attribute of God because when it talks about His holiness, the Bible says in Isaiah He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If we're not obsessed with holiness, we're not obsessed with God. Holiness is what He is. So holiness is what we do. We have to have a grip, a resolve. In the verses 17 and 18, I want to point out two things, but the first thing I just want to point out is the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as uh, silver. Or gold. And the first thing I just want to point out, there's a lot of things in this text, but we have a new father now. And our old father was the devil, the father of this world. And our old father was the fathers who led us into the futile ways of thinking. But this text says that to, to live a life of holiness, you need to know that we're in a different category now. We've been separated and we're now children of God. I love Martin Luther's catechism on the Ten Commandments. the Lord's Prayer Martin Luther's catechism when it's expounding on the Lord's Prayer it, it talks about that introduction and it says our father in heaven and the simple question it asks what does this mean and the answer in Martin Luther's catechism is that he is our true father and we are his true son that there has to be this reality on this pursuit of holiness that We are no longer labeled or categorized by this world. We have been separated, we've been chosen, and called out, that's what the text says, you've been called to be holy. You've been called out of this world. There's another trait in this text, and I like to title it, The Missing Trait of Holiness. I wanna ask you what you think it is. I want you to look at verses 17 through 18. And if I were to ask you this morning, what is the missing trait of holiness? What do you think it would be in your Bible? What would be the missing trait? Well, let me read it for you. You can probably guess what it is. It says, conduct yourself with fear. I want to read it again. It says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile." And the biggest problem in the church today is we just don't fear God. We just don't. We know we should. We know it's vital. We know we can't pursue holiness without the fear of God, but we just don't. And you probably have heard this before, and it's probably the worst lie in the lukewarm church today. Well, the fear of God was in the Old Testament. But the love of God is in the New Testament. How many of you have heard that before? What we see is actually biblical is that the fear and the love of God are in the Old Testament. And the fear and the love of God are in the New Testament. It's a false comparison, a false dichotomy. The Bible says fear is the beginning of knowledge. It says elsewhere, fear is the beginning of wisdom. So you will not know anything about a life of holiness until you know the fear of the Lord. So how do we fear God? That's a tough one. It's a hard one to to get just right. And I think Martin Luther brings some good insight into this. Because Luther feared God rightly and he also feared God wrongly. That's a rarity. We just don't fear God. Luther actually feared him rightly and feared him wrongly. Before he was converted, and he separated this in two Latin terms. for his conversion, that's a fear of a slave that has to a master that's going to come and unjustly beat you and torture you. And Martin Luther said that kind of fear causes you not to revere, but to hate it's kind of fear many lost people have in our world. It's a fear that is a fear of torture, the fear of incoming judgment. But it doesn't make you revere, it makes you hate the master. Martin Luther had another term, and that's filial. and that, That's a son-to-father type fear. And I think it's interesting that in this passage, we have both the fatherhood of God and the fear of God. And we would normally separate those two. At least in our day and our culture. But we see Peter puts them right together. That to fear God rightly is to fear him as father and judge. As we see in the text. To fear him rightly. And we don't have time to go into it today. But I want to give you a little homework. I want you to, when you go home, look up Exodus chapter 20 verse 20. And you're going to see Moses coming down from the mountain. And he says this. Do not be afraid. I have come down from the mountain so that you might fear the Lord. That seems like a contradiction. Unless there's two different kinds of fears. The fear that God's people had is, God, don't even talk to us. That's the wrong kind of fear. The fear that Moses wanted to bring to people was a true reverence that doesn't make you run from, but run to and revere and worship and honor and glorify. We need to fear God rightly. And it's something we need to contemplate and think about to prepare our minds. The last part I want to look at, and it will tie into the bottom of the passage, is the precious blood of holiness. Let's read verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but listen, but with the precious blood. Blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. In other words, this was the predetermined plan of God. For God the Father to send God the Son to reach God's people. In eternity past, this was God's predetermined plan. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The precious blood of Jesus. We need to know this morning, you weren't just ransomed with anything. Peter gets an end in this passage and Peter says... You know, you know what you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You were ransomed by God Himself, the spotless Lamb through the predetermined plan of God. He died for you. It is the greatest work. Thomas, Thomas Watson said in The Body of Divinity, which I would recommend any Christian to buy. Quote, great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In one, there was the speaking of a word, but in the other there was the shedding of blood. This is the motivation of holiness. Peter says, you know that it costs the precious blood of Christ. Creation, it says in Psalms eight three, was the work of god's fingers but the work of redemption we see the bible says was the piercing of his hands and his feet peter says we need to look at the precious blood of christ one pastor was counseling a man who was unfaithful to his wife and the pastor stood there in silence just waiting for him to speak and condemnation, just, just being in the terror of realizing his own sin. And the man who was unfaithful to his wife said, the only way I could do it was to flip over the pictures of my wife and of my kids. I couldn't look at it and commit such a horrible act. And so too it is for the Christian life. When we choose knowingly to rebel against God, we have to always turn our eyes from the bruised, beaten, bloody Savior. You have to turn away. You have to. Because you cannot look at this substitutionary sacrifice where His name was written on, your name is written on His palms. You cannot look at the bruised, beaten, bloodied Savior. And still walk in your rebellion and sin. And my plea with us today is don't turn your eyes. Don't make the blood of Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross an afterthought in your pursuit of holiness. Because if it's an afterthought, so will your pursuit of holiness. It cannot be an afterthought. It has to be forefront in our minds that Jesus died For my sins. He died for you. This is the pursuit of holiness. And the bottom of this text, verses 22 to 25, are really connecting to the next chapter. I like to read them and expound on them briefly. You have your Bible starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for, listen, a sincere brotherly love. Now here's the scary reality of holiness. Thus far we have just talked about the internal struggles of temptation coming to us. Now what we see is Peter's going to expound in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and so on that holiness is how we relate to other people. That's perhaps the hardest part of holiness. It's not me, it's those other crazy people out there. That's the real struggle of holiness. And what we see in this passage is if if we get this internal struggle right, it's going to produce fruit and it's going to give us brotherly love towards those in Christ. And it says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord Remains forever. Paul Washer said something interesting. He said, Quote, a theologian has nothing on the man who has experienced God. Now let me explain that. Our experience should never change our theology. Because if it does, the heart that is deceitful above all things is determining what's true. That's not what he means. What he means is that. The theology that we study should so experientially affect us and change us that we should live out that experienced theology with such vigor and determination that it changes the way we relate to others. That's what we need today. Not just more head knowledge. We need not just information, but the transformation of the heart. To pursue holiness. And this is our call. And we're going to see this call throughout this entire passage. Peter preaches the good news, and it is so good. In fact, that's how he finishes this passage. And this word is the good news preached to you. And isn't it good news that you no longer have to live in the futile ways of the past. You no longer have to live in the dominion and bondage of sin. But you can live in freedom. You can live in servanthood of a God who is coming. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is our call, the pursuit of holiness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness and grace. I thank you for this church. What an awesome church. I, I love this church because it's a church that you can tell, it's a church that really loves to hear God's word, and that is a rarity. I'm so thankful, Father, to have the opportunity just to encourage and speak to my brothers and sisters in christ i pray this day that the pursuit of holiness would would be in our hearts that if we were callous this morning you would pierce our hearts and that we would yearn for you once again help us to have a prepared mind help us to gird up the loins of our mind help us to keep your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you Thank you for your work, because as Peter said, this is the good news that was preached to you. We want to glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen.